0: What do you know about Mexico City? Longtime resident David Lita wants to show you why he calls the city his home. For one thing, go out for a drink and you can expect plenty of free appetizers.
1: I don't know any city in the world that is as generous to its drinkers as Mexico City.
0: Author Patricia Schultz has been thinking about the reasons we like to travel and what we might expect to find when we get there.
2: It is surprising, and you hope it is, because what have you saved all of that time and money to get on the flight and be there for in the first place?
0: Coming up, we'll take a closer look at why we keep on traveling. And an orchestra conductor shares his favorite venues for experiencing classical music in Europe, where a concert setting can take you back to the world of a great composer. And the
3: acoustics can be amazing, too. I love when I'm in Europe. Go into every single church, you're bound to find music. Come along as we get you ready for great adventures in the year ahead. It's
0: Travel with Rick Steves. Where you hear a concert can turn it into an experience you'll always remember. Orchestra conductor Lee Mills joins us in a bit to recommend his favorite venues for enjoying classical music in Europe. And while making inroads on visiting the thousand places to see before you die had to take a pause during the pandemic, it gave Patricia Schultz time to consider the reasons we like to travel. She joins us today to look at how to keep the pre-trip excitement going strong when we actually get there. By the way, today we're celebrating program number 700 of Travel with Rick Steves. Let's start the hour with a look at the pleasures of Mexico City. New Yorker David Lita moved there more than 30 years ago and wouldn't dream of living anywhere else. Welcome back, David.
1: Hey, Rick. How are you doing?
0: I'm doing great, and having you on reminds me of the fun we had when we got together a few years ago, and you introduced me to the wonders of Mexico City, and and I came away from that wondering, why does everybody go to Mexico, but they only go to the coast, and so few people recognize how exciting Mexico City is?
1: I actually have some thoughts about that. You know, um, in the 80s, there was a huge earthquake and a lot of bad news came out of Mexico. In the 90s, there was a crime problem, which is very much rectified now. And, you know, as someone who grew up in New York in the 1970s, I've thought, like, what does it take to change a reputation? Because, you know, New York had a, a terrible reputation in those days. Right. Well, to make a long story short, Rick, in 2015, The New York Times travel section put Mexico City as number one on the 52 places to visit that year. And after that, everybody started to publish positive articles about Mexico City. And it really is, I think, finally overcoming that bad reputation and being recognized for what it deserves.
0: And what you do um, as a a New Yorker who's really adopted Mexico and now lived there for a couple decades, you actually lead people around on tours and... You know, you do tours on murals, on markets, on street food, on cantinas, on offbeat experiences, and so on. Let's talk about your secrets tour to the historical center. This is the ground zero for tourists, and and everybody sees the highlights. What are the two or three highlights they're going to see before they get into the secrets with you?
1: Well, just to let you know, like, if people have never been to Mexico City before, I always urge them to go to the Centro Historico, which is the oldest part of the city, and you've got all seven centuries of the history of that city right in one neighborhood, starting with the Aztec Temple, the Templo Mayor, up until Mexico City today. I like to show people some of the most famous highlights, like the, that main plaza, the, the Metropolitan Cathedral, the Diego Rivera murals. But I also like to take them off the beaten path. And there's a market called the Mercado Ablardo Rodriguez, And it has uh, murals that were painted by Rivera's students in the 1930s. It's a very much, you know, working class market, but it's the kind of place that most tourists wouldn't find by themselves. Right around the corner from that market, there is a synagogue. You know, Mexico is 90-something percent Catholic, but there is a small Jewish population And one of the oldest synagogues in the city has been restored. Um, Now it's more of a cultural center. It's not a working synagogue, but it's in really good condition. And I tell them a little bit about the history of the Jews in Mexico.
0: You know, there's when you say seven centuries of history, there is an amazing amount of history, and we're sort of a little bit ethnocentric about that here in the United States. We think, you know, so-and-so was the first settlement or the first discoverer or something like that. But things were happening in, in Mexico a long time before things were happening here in the United States, and even, of course, before Europeans came. One of the most sophisticated cities in the entire world, you could say, was the Mexico City that Europeans, quote, discovered.
1: Well, the Spaniards, if you read the memoirs of Hernán Cortes or Bernal Díaz de Castillo, they were they were just thunderstruck by Mexico. It was a bigger city when it was an Aztec city. It was a bigger city than any city in Europe. There was a population of two hundred to two hundred and fifty thousand people there, and it really worked very well.
0: They wrote it was like Venice with all its canals and this sort of thing. It just it's fascinating. Hey, David, when I was reading your website, you were talking about these secrets, and uh, you're going to see the big, famous bucket list things. But then you've got odd, just quirky sites, a museum of cakes. You've got uh, the biggest bag of cheese doodles, all these kind of fun, quirky little insights. Yeah. What are a couple of the surprises you'd show us on your secrets tour?
1: Well, well for example, like, I'm going to tell you about the cheese doodle place. There's a place where people who sell bags of cheese doodles and popcorn. They buy them from a place that has them in bulk and then they put them in little bags and sell them for five pesos on the street. But they're the biggest bags of popcorn and cheese doodles that I have ever seen in my life. I I jokingly say if I ever wanted to commit suicide by eating cheese doodles, that's straight where I would go to. Right. It, It happens to be on a street where I take people to eat the best tacos and street food because... You know, they can go to the fanciest restaurants, and a lot of them do, but they also want that experience. And not all street food is created equal. And in a city as big and confusing as Mexico City, it's good to have someone who can lead you to the right places.
0: I love those old mechanical tortilla machines that you see on the street that that cook them up. Are they still there?
1: Exactly. They're still, if you know where to go, places where they hand—they—they they use this hand-cranked machinery to make and sell the tortillas. Ugh. And, yeah, there's still plenty of them.
0: And there's where you'd, you'd like a guide. Hey, this is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with David Lida. He's lived in Mexico now since 1990 and uses it as an inspiration for his writing. David's book is called First Stop in the New World. You can learn more about David's work at his website. That's davidlida.com, spelled L-I-D-A. So, David, when you take uh, groups around, a lot of people are interested in the murals. One of the most memorable experiences I had was just seeing the Diego Rivera murals in the Palazzo de Bellas Artes. What do you like to show and, and what do you hope that people have as a takeaway when you give one of the mural tours?
1: Well, one of my favorite places is the Ministry of Public Education, That is basically where Diego Rivera learned to be a muralist. He had been living in Paris for 15 years. The Minister of Public Education convinced him to come back to Mexico and work on this mural project. His canvas was all the walls in a public building that takes up an entire square block. Mm. And you see his progress, learning to be a muralist. In the first murals, there's very few figures, in the panels and a lot of background because he was inspired by European murals, Italian murals. But by the time he gets like around the corner to the next uh, patio, he becomes Diego Rivera, the Diego Rivera we know and love, where there's a lot of figures packed into each panel and very little background. And it's kind of amazing to see his progression from being a kind of imitation European painter to becoming the preeminent Mexican painter of his generation.
0: Ah, it's, it's a in it's Mexico City for sure. One thing that you stress in your writing is the, the cantina scene. You know, London has its pubs and Munich has its beer halls, Paris has its cafes. In Mexico City would be the cantina. What is the yes. cantina scene and, and how would a visitor best enjoy that?
1: Well, I think the main thing about the cantinas that's wonderful is I don't know any city in the world that is as generous to its drinkers as Mexico City. If you go to most cantinas in Mexico City, as long as you keep ordering drinks, they give you food for free. And some of them have really incredible home-style Mexican cooking, you know, as good as some of the, the restaurants. And if you know which ones to go to, you can get not only have a few drinks and enjoy the company of whoever you're with, but eat a wonderful meal Mm. without paying any extra.
0: Is that what's called botanas?
1: Absolutely. Those are the botanas.
0: Botanas. So that would be like uh, in Italy you have the aperitivo and you buy a a spritz or a drink and you get a little buffet of uh, finger food.
1: Right. But this is actually more substantial than what they give you in Italy or Spain. This is a full meal. And they'll keep it coming until you cry uncle. I mean, Ah. I'm sure that the role model for what they do in cantinas with Spain, because there's so much Spanish influence in Mexico.
0: David Lita's our guide to the pleasures of North America's oldest capital, Mexico City, right now on Travel with Rick Steves. You can find out about David's neighborhood tours and the books he's written about Mexican culture and how it sometimes clashes with the United States. It's on his website, davidlita.com. Hey, David, we just got a a minute or so left. Talk about the the sounds and, and the smells that you most enjoy when you're out just following your spirit around Mexico City? Where, what, are some of the, what are some of the moments that we'll, we'll gather? Great,
1: great question, Rick. Um, so, the smell of tortillas frying in deep fat, the sound of hand cranked organs, which were brought over from Italy and Germany in the mid-19th century, they're still all over the, the city and they're way out of tune, Um, Also, the 19th century buildings, a a lot of people don't realize, but in the 19th century, Mexico's great cultural influence, this was after the independence from Spain, was France. So there's these buildings that look like they were done by French architects. The ornamental architecture, if you look up, Mm. is just beautiful, um, because there's still a lot of 19th century buildings left over in the Centro Histórico. You
0: know, that's part of the mark of a good traveler is taking a moment to listen and to smell and to observe the humanity on the streets, but also to look above at that commotion and see the architectural heritage that contains it all. Yes, David Lita, it's just so fun to talk to you because I think Mexico City is one of the underrated destinations uh, for travelers, especially when you think of how easy it is to get there from the United States. And that's what you talk about in your book, First Stop in the New World. David, if we could just kind of wrap it up, share share one experience where the the visitor could really appreciate and feel the soul and the the humanity of the biggest city in North America.
1: Just looking at the overwhelming number of people surviving by selling things in the street. They give the city a vibrant street energy that, to me, makes Mexico City unique.
0: I love it. David Lita, thanks so much for joining us, and I'm going to hope to connect with you next time I'm south of the border.
1: Thanks for inviting me, Rick.
0: David Lita explores what kind of socialist Diego Rivera really was in an extra to today's interview. You can hear it from our website at ricksteves.com slash radio. A young and on-the-rise orchestra conductor shares his favorite places to experience classical music in Europe in a few minutes. But first, author Patricia Schultz explores the reasons we travel and some insights on getting more out of your next trip. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Patricia Schultz's book 1,000 Places to See Before You Die inspired us to consider the many options we have for places and sites to experience in our lives. In her latest book, Patricia tackles the why of travel as she compiles her top travel lessons, personal stories, and practical tips. It's called Why We Travel, 100 Reasons to See the World. Patricia Schultz joins us today from her home base in New York City to talk about what makes travel so good for us. Patricia, thanks for being here.
2: Oh, thank you very much for having me, Rick. So,
0: Patricia, before we get into why we travel, I'm just fascinated by how you ended up traveling so much. What what got you started as a, a traveler and then a travel writer?
2: One pivotal moment, I was four years old and we were at the Jersey Shore, it was my earliest memory. I wandered away from the family beach blanket <laughs> and set my mother into an, a, a tizzy, calling all of the lifeguards into action, and I never really felt lost. I just thought I was, you know, off on a big adventure. And this idea of, you know, discovery and excitement and the thrill of being outside, what was familiar, was very real to me, even in an early age. The world's your playground, really. Yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, fast forward to 15, I was um, I was at a high school in upstate New York and befriended a lovely uh, girl from the Dominican Republic. We became fast friends, and she was going home to her family in Santo Domingo for the summer. And why didn't I come along? And we said, yeah, yeah, sure. never thought it could actually happen. And lo, my parents, who were just remarkable parents, really never traveled much themselves at all other than Atlantic City, uh, kind of, you know, worked overtime, triple shifts and put together a ticket. And off I went at 15 on my with my first passport, my first solo travel. And um, that kicked open the door because... That to me was just a whole entirely new world about which I knew nothing coming from a small town in New York State. And that made quite a deep indelible mark Hmm. on my soul. And then as soon as I went to university, the minute I heard there was a junior year abroad program made available to us, was I interested, I started saving my shekels. And being immersed for a year and a foreign culture with different ways and different everything. Madrid is a fantastic city. That's where my program was, and I just fell in love with everything Mm. that was offered, both within the classroom and certainly without. And it's been pretty much nonstop ever since.
0: And you've spent literally decades thinking about travel, and and now, I I would imagine, in part because of some time during the pandemic when we all have a chance to think about, wow, I can't travel and I want to travel. You've written a book called Why We Travel.
2: Yeah. It was a very opportune moment for me to step back, reflect, and find myself with all this time being stationary to put this book together. I thought, oh, I can knock this off in a few weeks because the 1,000 places tomes are very, very time-consuming. They take me years with each um, update. You know how that goes. Oh, yeah. But a book of this kind, I thought, well, it's such a simplistic notion. I I, I know why, <laughs> but mm-hmm. it's very profound. And to do a deep dive into the why of anything can be very revealing and very interesting. Um, but what I did come up with, I hope, is what will be seen as a um, inspiration or a reminder to all of those of, of us who have become kind of lackadaisical or, you know, the the more we haven't traveled, the more... Maybe people aren't kind of, you know, happy not having traveled and, you know, cleaning out their closets, but I'm hoping this makes us realize all over again just how special it is and how fun and inspiring it is and how important it is to us.
0: Patricia Schultz loves what a good adventure can do for us. During the pandemic's closures, the author of the Thousand Places to See a Before You Die series had time to consider why traveling is so important for so many of us. Patricia's collected short essays, quotes, and images from her most memorable trips. It's in her latest book called Why We Travel, 100 Reasons to See the World. We have links to her work in the notes for this week's show. Look for program number 700 at ricksteves.com slash radio. How have you learned? What's an example of how... You talked about in Bali, you had a, an experience with a tooth filing... Is that an example of the kind of um, eurekas you get when you travel?
2: Yeah. The tooth filing ceremony in Bali is really something remarkable. And one of the things I suggest in the book is to accept all invitations. And that sounds almost reckless. I mean, of course, we all need to exercise our radar and judgment of character. I I don't, you know, invite myself into strangers' homes, but... It was the owner of my Airbnb who knew me for five minutes and was being very rushed because he was finalizing all of the preparations for his 15-year-old daughter's tooth filing ceremony, which is their kind of coming of age, mostly for young girls but also for young boys, where they file their canine teeth but also all of the front teeth. And it's this age-old either Balinese or Hindu or both custom, and it's a very social thing, and the whole island, or certainly the whole village takes place, and I hesitated, but I did accept at the end because, I mean, it wasn't a select crowd, it was open to the entire village, but I was swept up.
0: You know, that reminds me, once when I was in Bali, I got invited to be the photographer at a wedding, and I, uh, I didn't, I never thought of myself as a photographer at a wedding, I'm on vacation, but I said, sure, because I had the best camera around, you know, and being a tourist and i got to take pictures at I, I believe it was first the the groom's house and then we all got in pickups and we went over to the bride's house <laughs> and it was that same thing you're talking about except invitations and that means you know letting serendipity do its thing my my mantra is when an opportunity presents itself say yes and of oh, course you got to use your sure. radar for safety and all of that but but that's fundamental you you also talked in your book about don't forget to look up and look down. I think that was very wise.
2: Yeah, and that can be interpreted in, in so many different ways. But, you know, I think we get fixated on a certain perspective or just putting one foot in front of the other or just trying mm-hmm. to get from A to B. And I think you miss a lot of the picture. You miss the other 90% of what surrounds you between, you know, the 14th century mosaic pavements that you're walking straight over on your way to getting to the exit or are you not looking up at remarkable, you know, Byzantine facades because you're just distracted or because of any reason? I mean, yeah. the beauty of any of these aphorisms that we learn is that all of this translates to the usual nine to five, Monday to Friday, day to day, same old, same old. And I think it all enriches your life because it all makes you more aware. It makes you more involved and more present.
0: I think related to that is your comment about going with the flow. You had a fun example at a—you were at a—I think in a hotel and you couldn't sleep because there was a big party going on before a U2 (laughs) concert in Dublin— And you had the right attitude, didn't you? What did
2: you do? Yeah, already that alone sounds pretty exciting. It wasn't exciting in the moment because I was so exhausted. I cannot sleep on a flight, whether it's two hours or 12 hours. I just can't sleep on a plane. Didn't really bother to check the local headlines or newspapers. But um, long story short, U2 was coming into town. And I was one of six people that wasn't really impressed that they were doing a very infrequent concert and the people, their fan base, who is so devoted, were flying in from all corners of the globe. It was such a big deal. So I grabbed whatever was available. It was a triple-priced, way overpriced um, room above a pub, and but a very historical, well-known pub, if that meant anything. And so I got there. I arrived. I put my head on the pillow. I thought that you know jet lag would help me fall asleep within seconds. And suddenly, through my window on the fifth floor, there came this commotion, and I looked out, and the side streets were filled with people, and the pub and all of its customers had kind of overflowed into the surrounding area, and were singing the entire repertoire from U2, and everybody knew every lyric from every song that was ever published. And I just kind of wandered about, and it literally was seconds before I was kind of embraced into this big crowd of everybody was on their eighth pint and oh I was American. I had flown in from New York, they thought for the concert. Oh uh, yeah. So it was great fun. I, I slept like an hour and a half. That
0: well night. sometimes you're ready for a good night's sleep and uh situation is you're not gonna get a good night's sleep. You can sit in the room and stew or you can put on your shoes and go out there and join the <laughs> Go party. out
2: and dance. <laughs>
0: go with the flow. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about the reasons we get off the couch and get out and experience the world with travel writer Patricia Schultz. Her newest book is called Why We Travel 100 Reasons to See the World. Patricia, serendipity, it's it's a beautiful thing. Uh, Travelers that know how to harness serendipity, I think, have more experiences. You wrote beautifully about serendipity in Morocco.
2: Yes, we showed up at the airport. The flight was canceled. We had no indication, no alert, no notice, anything. We didn't quite know what to do. We were leaving from Casablanca to Fez. It was a 45 minute flight, four or five hours by car, we thought. So we looked for a cab driver who might be available. And we met the loveliest, nicest, most gentle man called Mohammed. And he was going to take us there. We negotiated on the price. First, we asked him, however, if he could bring us for the best couscous in town. We were starved. And he got on his iPhone, very animated conversation that went on since forever. And uh, he brought us to the outskirts of town, to his home. His mother, his wife, his twin daughters, and pretty much the entire neighborhood was waiting for us. We We realized at that point that it was Friday, and it was the Islamic day when it's a family day. It's their day of worship and prayer, and it's their day for couscous. And it was pretty much the best couscous in all of Africa, if I dare say. It's a memory that I'll never forget. And his mother was very sweet. She didn't speak English, but she still sends me Christmas cards.
0: Oh, and you eventually <laughs> got to your destination. That is a perfect example of of harnessing serendipity, positive serendipity, and your flight got canceled. Okay, what are you going to do? You're going to enjoy a meal that you'll never forget for the rest of your life. Another thing you wrote about, which is kind of why we travel to me also, is having your your what you expect flip-flopped. You went to Iran and you wrote about how it was possibly the friendliest country you've ever traveled in.
2: Oh boy, Rick, if I uh, when I'm asked for my most eye-opening, surprising you know, jolt out of everything destination. I'm in love with Iran. The Iranians are some of the loveliest and just gracious in a way that is part of their culture since forever, since the Persian Empire. You know, they talk to you, they're inviting you into their homes, they're giving you um, directions and suggestions for restaurants and where to go and how to... I mean, just an open immediacy and friendliness and curiosity. Everybody has, you know, an uncle teaching at the university in California. Everybody has family in Brooklyn. There's there's immediate friendship, and it's sincere. It's authentic. It's from the heart, and it it's from everywhere. The
0: it's, and I got... People told me before I went to Iran it was really friendly, and I I, I was skeptical. And I got to Iran... And I had the same experience you did. I, it's I remember overwhelming. When we were filming, I had a lot of downtime as the cameraman was working on stuff, and I would just walk around the block, and I was doing something we called eye fishing. I was walking around and just looking to catch eye contact with somebody, and as soon as I did, there was a conversation. <laughs> and it was a wonderful conversation. It was just filled with curiosity and, and joy. I went into a bookstore, I remember, and I was just marveling at a beautiful book, but I wasn't chopping because I don't buy souvenirs when I'm packing light. And the woman in the bookstore realized I liked the book. I wasn't going to buy it. She just offered to give it to me. And (laughs) that's never happened to me in a bookstore before. I was in a traffic jam in Tehran, which I'll never forget. And we were just quiet, stopped. And the man in the next car asked my driver to roll down his window. He (laughs) handed over a bouquet of flowers, and he said, give this to the (laughs) foreigner in your back seat and apologize for our traffic. It's those kind of things. And I think you had the the same kind of experience going to a country we're not supposed to go to. It's our enemies, you know, and and we can overcome those misconceptions if we get those people-to-people connections. The title of your book, Why We Travel, boy, that's one reason right there, isn't it?
2: Oh, it's on the tippity-top of my short list.
0: What's your advice on culture shock?
2: Uh, welcome it. I mean, you Amen. want to.
0: I'm so glad you said that. Wow. Yeah.
2: I mean, you want to be jolted out of these ideas that are fed us since the time we're, you know, three hours old and are reinforced by, usually by people who have never been to the destination that you're talking about. So, yeah, that all needs to be put aside. And you think maybe you do, and then you arrive in the three-dimensional and the here and now, and you realize that it is surprising, and you hope it is, because what have you saved all of that time and money to get on the flight and be there for in the first place? So I think you want to be surprised, and you want to embrace it, and you want to bring that home with you, because every place you visit, I think, becomes a part of you, or it should, at least.
0: Ironically, a lot of people work really hard to avoid culture shock, and to me and to you, it's a constructive thing. I I think uh, we'd agree it's one of the reasons why we travel.
2: James Michener has a wonderful quote as well about if you're going to avoid all of that, then just stay home.
0: (laughs) Just stay home. Yeah, that's well, and that's not why we travel, that's for sure. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Patricia Schultz. We know her from her book 1,000 Places to See Before You Die. And she's got a new book now. It's called Why We Travel, A 100 Reasons to See the World. Patricia, one of the big challenges, I think, for travelers lately is how can we be present, to be in the moment, to be tuned in? There's so many people are lost in their screen or busy doing their Instagram selfies and so on, and we forget to actually be there. What's your advice?
2: Well, it seems to be inevitable and easy, I think, when you travel alone. So I know that many people hesitate, and a lot of people are just outright fearful of traveling solo. And not just women or females, but, you know, everyone. And I understand it. It's very understandable. I still get, you know, butterflies. I mean, all the what-ifs. But um, do it once, because it's so empowering, and it's so eye opening, and it's such a very different experience than traveling with a friend. You bring a little bit of home with you. It gets a little too comfortable. You're sitting at the table in a restaurant, and all you're talking about is her ex boyfriend who keeps texting her and you know or all of the turbulations from home that you've brought with you. You know, so when you're alone, all of your senses are on alert in a very positive way, I think. You meet people more easily. Stuff comes to you more easily. That discussion we had about serendipity, just finding you. But you need to be present. You need to put yourself out there. And if you're traveling with a group, sometimes people who travel alone will only travel with a group. They consider it traveling solo. It's not really in my book, but I think whatever gets you out of the house, whatever gets you Mm -hmm. off the sofa is fine with me. But alone alone, that's a whole other experience. And it's a very invaluable one.
0: You know, you mentioned to try it once, and it occurred to me, yes, a lot of people go through their whole travel careers and they never even consider going alone, and they might not realize that'll open the door to much more Richness in their travels. I I think the first time I traveled alone, it was probably because something fell through and my partner couldn't go with me. That's And I got over there And it was a freedom. (laughs) You know, I love to travel with the right partner. I always say, uh, you know, a great way to travel is the right partner. And the loneliest people are the people who are stuck with the wrong partner in their Mm. travels. And much better than that is going alone. But I think going alone, just because you're going to be alone, opens you up to more experiences and uh, you might be more um, exposed to those beautiful reasons of why we travel.
2: Yeah. I really, really, I mean, from the heart, I so encourage it because I don't know that anybody's come back and said, yeah, that wasn't a good idea. If anything, they come back just so proud, you know, that they've survived it and they're already planning their next three trips alone and some people then become very fixed on traveling only alone because they've understood how special it is.
0: You know, your advice of following serendipity and accepting invitations and going with the flow, these sort of fundamental skills for good travel, going alone greases the skids in every one of those examples, I would say. Yes, Patricia Schultz, thanks so much. It's always great to talk to you, and um, thanks for writing your new book, Why We Travel.
2: Thank you. Hope to see you soon, Rick.
0: One great reason to travel to Europe is to immerse yourself in its many arts and cultural venues. There's likely to be a good one just a short walk away. We'll explore some of our favorites with conductor Lee Mills next on Travel with Rick Steves. You can truly distinguish your next vacation overseas by making time to experience a great music performance at a local concert venue. Many of the same great concert halls the Masters of Classical Music performed in are where you can attend a concert today. To get us started on the possibilities, we're joined by maestro Lee Mills. Lee was the young and energetic conductor of the Seattle Symphony and the Minnesota Orchestra during the Symphonic Journey presentations I gave there a few years ago. We used music to illustrate how Romantic-era composers in the 19th century wrote works that helped to foster national pride in Norway, Austria, France, England, Germany, Italy, and the Czech Republic. Lee's back with us on Travel with Rick Steves to help us consider some great venues across Europe that promise to add cultural excitement to your next trip. Lee,
3: welcome back. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here.
0: Whoa, I've had so much fun when I stumble into a great classical experience on the road yeah. and it helps if you have you know if your parents made to take the piano or if you played <laughs> in, the, in
3: school or if you're a conductor like you yeah.
0: but it, it really does give an extra dimension to your travels if you can enjoy a little classical music on the road doesn't it?
3: It certainly does yeah there's so much uh, going on if you go to almost any European town it doesn't matter how small or what day of the week it is I promise you you will find a performance that's going on that's going to really be really high quality in a beautiful, beautiful concert.
0: Now, and you have a high bar, I would imagine, because you are the maestro. You are the boy wonder. What you been been—you're like 35 years old, and you've been professionally conducting ever since you were in your early
3: 20s. Yeah, 21, I
0: think. 21 my first gig. Tell us your story, just briefly, before we get into my questions about European travel. Yeah. How did you become a conductor who's hired to perform? all over the
3: United States. I mean, Lee Mills is coming to town. (laughs) It's up there on the the billboard. Um, Well, I started playing piano when I was about three. We had one in our house, and I was begging my parents for... Piano lessons. What a and,
0: strange kid! Yeah, begging you, right. the maestro in the making.
3: Well, you know, and I would take the it was an upright piano, and I would take the panel off the bottom of the piano, yeah. uh, under like where your knees go, and I would lie down backwards on my piano bench, and I would push the keys from the bottom, like the mechanism from the bottom, and I would play stuff lying down upside down under my pianos. So, yeah, that's how it all started, and uh, I picked up trumpet, and I started singing through college, and then I came across conducting and fell in love with it when I was at my undergraduate, and then I went to the Peabody Institute for my graduate degree and focused on conducting, and that's when I started doing it professionally as well. So I think most
0: of your career has been—well, uh, you've, you've performed all over the place in Europe, the United States and Latin America, but you were for— four or five years in Brazil and yeah. then for three years here in Seattle. How would you say the experience as a conductor is different in Brazil compared to uh, Seattle or the United States?
3: Well, um, I think when I got the job in Brazil, and I wasn't even the the big boss conductor of the orchestra when I got the job I was a resident conductor, and I showed up on the second page of the biggest newspaper in Rio. So it would be like being on the second page of the New York Times, a whole full-page interview with me. So there's a certain reverence in Brazil, and I noticed it also in, in, like, Italy when I've worked in Italy. When you're the maestro, there's this, like, they revere artists, like, at this level. That's uh, And then you come I've to the United States where so
0: you got to go, uh, excuse me, I can just see you hitting your baton on the table. Excuse me, I I am the conductor.
3: (laughs) I have conversations. I'll go out and meet new friends or whatever, and they're like, what do you do? And I say, oh, I'm a conductor. And they're like, oh, like trains?
0: (laughs) (laughs) What I want to talk about is going to Europe and enjoying classical music in Europe. And you've actually worked in Europe. You actually were um, conducting in Venice. Yes. That's the hall that burned down, isn't it? Twice, (laughs) <laughs> I've always wanted to go to a concert I never have, what was that like? So it's called La Fenice,
3: which means the phoenix Well, in... oh, that's the right name for phoenix. something, it's burned down twice Exactly, and ironically, I think the last time it burned down was doing a production of Don Giovanni and um, I was there I was assistant conductor to help out with all three of the productions of the Mozart da Ponte cycle, so you have Don Giovanni The Marriage of Figaro and Casifantute so we were doing Don Giovanni and the actual set the director had the set designed so that there's like probably 200 candelabras with real candles on stage and it was, everybody was just joking that they're tempting fate because the last time no. it burned down was during a Don Giovanni production. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it was okay. It didn't burn down,
0: but it is beautiful.
3: You know, you've and got those.
0: It took me like a, a forty dollar tip to get the candles lit when I was filming in a Venetian palace. Once. Oh, but yeah. to get those can, candelabra with real
3: candles yeah, going, yeah, yeah, it's beautiful. And it was on a rotating stage too, so all these candelabras were on walls and stuff, and the whole thing was moving, and the candles were lit. It was it was tempting. Fate. You know, there's
0: there's, <laughs> there's two opera halls in Europe that are rival as the oldest opera halls, and mm. they're candle lit and no amplification, and yeah. they've got all these great operatic um, sound-making machines. One is in Stockholm and the other is in uh, the Czech Republic. Oh, yeah. And they are just, it's amazing to go to a historic concert hall. Europe venerates that, it seems yeah. like.
3: Well, you know, and you mentioned no amplification. Almost all concert halls for classical music and opera have no amplification. You oh, know, I, that's, I didn't know that. Is that
0: sort of, that's a quality, a measure of quality, I suppose.
3: Yeah, I mean, they're really beautiful halls and like La Fenice in Venice is like this most of the time, you don't get huge, huge, huge opera halls like here in the United States. We build them gargantuan, but yeah. all these, you know, famous halls like even La Scala, if you go in there, it's actually quite small. They're pretty
0: small, aren't they? It's compared pretty, to what we're used you know, to. it's
3: like six stories tall, but yeah. it's how does that pencil out? Do
0: they get higher ticket costs? Do they get big uh, donations, or does the government subsidize it, or do the music-
3: musicians charge less? A combination of all of those, kind of, except for the donations. They're, yeah. they're mostly funded by governments. Uh-huh. Um, the tickets, you know, especially the very famous ones, are very expensive yeah. if you're going to go to La Scala. But they
0: always make a little they g- do. compensation for students and yep. poor people and people that just can't afford live music.
3: That's the great thing about Europe. I went all over Europe by train when I uh, was in college. Yeah. I spent the summer, yeah. the whole, you know, the cliché backpacking around Europe right. and staying in hostels with 20 people in a room and taking the train everywhere. And with your student ID card, you can get tickets everywhere for like 20 euros or something really affordable. If you know
0: how to stand in line and when to be at the right spot, and if you don't mind going up to the top and, and leaning against a rail instead of getting a nice cushy seat, yeah. you can hear La Scala, you can hear yep. the Vienna, Orchestra, uh, yep. Vienna Opera, the Vienna or- Symphony Orchestra for peanuts.
3: Yeah, I, I and mean, actually, you know, even here in the United States, a lot of places you can do that. I used to go all the time to the Metropolitan Opera and get a standing room only ticket. This
0: is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Maestro Lee Mills, and uh, Lee has been a conductor all over the United States, and he's taken his talents as a conductor to Europe. You were several years in Venice. When I'm in Venice, I'm always sort of torn to how many classical music opportunities there are around. Some of them are very touristy with people in wigs and leotards, you know, and
3: others are very serious. Venice is just, was remarkable. It's remarkable living there for a while, and it was remarkable just getting to work and music and the quality of artists that are there, especially doing Italian opera, is just fantastic. Because it's
0: a small town, it's a town of with a population of sixty thousand or something oh, yeah. like that. But of course, you got millions of tourists coming in. So you're, aren't you performing mostly for tourists?
3: Mostly, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, the the hall was sold out every single night uh, mm-hmm. for um, a whole month, six days a week. So for and, that production. And then
0: you moved over to Verona, and Verona's famous for its opera festival in the Roman arena, right?
3: Right. Well, actually, Verona was a, a place that I went when I was, uh, I wasn't living there, it was a place I went when I was just uh, on that train trip I mentioned oh, yeah. in college, and right. that's one of the student tickets I bought. You know, yeah. I, I splurged a little bit on a more expensive ticket, but with the student discount, it was really affordable, and that's, you know, that's another one of those things everybody says, oh, you know, that's a tourist venue, but I have to tell you, I was blown away. It's a, a capacity of 14,000 people. And for 2,000 years, people have been gathering there. Yeah, it's an ancient Roman arena. like It's like a, a small coliseum. Hey, when you're traveling around Europe, there's a lot of music festivals,
0: and it's something that I think you have to plan for because you want to get tickets in advance. Oh, definitely. Yeah. What's your advice for classical music aficionados or people who want to enjoy some classical music while they're traveling around Europe as it uh, relates to festivals?
3: There are a couple of really great ones. The Britton Pierce Festival is up in Suffolk, England, mm-hmm. and that's a really great festival. If you like Benjamin Britton's music, it's usually full of that and then sort okay. of adjacent composers. I really love Aix-en-Provence, which is down in Aix-en-Provence. That's the south of France. Yeah, so it's, a, it's an opera festival that goes on all summer long, and they do dozens of operas. They've got a beautiful outdoor theater that uh, is just really incredible.
0: Don't you think it's amazing in Vienna? I was just in Vienna, and talking about a festival, it's a constant festival because they don't just do one opera. Oh, yeah. Every night there's a different opera. Yeah. It does it in a, ro- in a rotation. So you could be there for four nights and then have you... four different operas with the Vienna Philharmonic in the pit.
3: Yeah, they've got a very busy stage crew. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how it was when I was in Venice, too. We did the um, three separate operas, but it was, you know, Monday would be Marriage of Figaro, Tuesday would be Cos' Tutte, Wednesday would be Don Giovanni,
0: Is that a lot for a a conductor to keep in his head? (laughs) It was a lot of
3: music, yeah. It was a lot
0: of music. So that is, I think what you're acknowledging is you've got people that are coming through and they have a huge appetite for this and they're happy to go two nights in a row if you have two different performances.
3: Exactly, yeah.
0: We're gearing up to enjoy great musical performances in magnificent concert halls and festival venues across Europe right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Joining us is Seattle Symphony Associate Conductor Lee Mills. Lee, when we're thinking about festivals, you got to think about Salzburg. Yes, of course. Oh, you know, there's so <laughs> many... All year long, <laughs> there's, there's... Salzburg there's, Festival. But it's... that is something. What are your highlights from Salzburg?
3: You know, I think one of my favorite things to do in Salzburg, I went to the Mozart House. And yeah. You can see, you know, yeah. just like putting yourself in the shoes of the composer oh, yeah. hundreds of years ago. You know, I looked. I preserved. was just
0: there a couple of weeks ago, as a matter of fact, and I saw his um, tour schedule. I mean, uh-huh. he spent 3,000 days on the road, if I yeah. remember correctly. And it was like, you know, you, when you have a Rolling Stones concert, you can get the sweatshirt that has every city that they stop yeah, in or yeah. something like that. Yeah. You look at the Mozart road trip, and it was over many years, and it was on rutted roads that's in a what horse-drawn gets me, right? carriage with a violin that's going to be out of tune by the time you get there.
3: They weren't traveling in first class with the VIP lounge <laughs> at the airport, you know, so you got the boy hotel. wonder
0: going on a rickety ruckety road up to Berlin and then over to Leipzig Bumping the and whole then over way. To, oh my goodness! I mean, it took days. You but know. but you go to the Mozart House. There's two of them in Salzburg, and and you get yeah. a, an insight into his world, and uh, you can go into Vienna and there's the mm-hmm. the House der Musik there, mm-hmm. which has a wonderful uh, exhibit about Mozart.
3: Yeah, and and uh, you can see they've got instruments. You know Mozart's instruments in there. They've got a harpsichord, violin. There's a kind music, of crazy. You know,
0: they're getting so good with the audio uh, support now. There's a, a musical instrument museum in the Hofburg Palace in Vienna, and you get your audio uh, headset on, and you type in the number for every instrument there, and you can hear these early Bursendorfers, these clavichords, oh, wow. these harpsichords, and so on. If you're curious about, you know, uh, various keyboard instruments, yeah. it's it's just amazing. Lee, when I'm talking with you, it just I just feel like. A lot of people love classical music, but they don't quite maximize the experience when they mm. get this great chance to go to Europe. Mm. For instance, when I go to a concert, I love to be aware of the architecture as well as the music because if you, if you listen to Baroque music in a Baroque palace, there's something right about it. It's almost right. like a nice pairing of wine and, and <laughs> your cheese and your meat.
3: Yeah, definitely. Um, one, of the things, one of the most memorable concerts I went to, I, I think it was in Warsaw, in this big Gothic church, I heard um anton Bruckner's Sixth Symphony, which he wrote for this kind of space, these big stone, cavernous churches and you know he was a contemporary of wagner and but his music is quite different, and it just he creates just like pilings these sound waves on top of each other and these harmonies all intermeshing with each other.
0: Uh, if, uh, hoping people would enjoy it in a giant cavernous cathedral well, instead of a concert hall.
3: I'm, I'm not sure what he was hoping exactly, mm-hmm. but that was the spaces that his orchestras were performing in. Yeah. So he was writing for that space. And, and you get this, if you hear it in a concert hall, it's good and it's nice, it's pretty, but if you hear it in one of these spaces, it's just almost overwhelming that how much sound and it just keeps piling on top of it, of itself. So when you're
0: going to enjoy music in Europe, you're stumbling onto this music. Uh, you and I were just talking about how in Europe they have these round um, kiosks that are yeah. billboard collectors. And yeah. Everybody's got a concert going on. Yeah. When you step into a church while you're sightseeing, Always look in the narthex there. What's going on tonight? And there, there's probably
3: a free concert. Probably. And there might even be a rehearsal going on when you step in there because, you know, they do these rehearsals while the church is still open for regular people to and go in and pray. And anybody
0: can sit down and enjoy yeah. the ambiance and the sort of the ad-lib concert of a
3: practice session. There might be a choir rehearsing. There might be the organist in there practicing. I I just, I love when I'm in Europe, go into every single church. You're bound to find music.
0: Oh, yeah. I was just hiking for six days around Mount Blanc and I came into Chamonix after the hike. We hiked down into the town and there's the big church and I stepped into the church and there was an amazing pipe organist practicing as if, welcome, you've come out of nature, now you're back to your regular world. Sit down and let it all just soak in with a little beautiful music. It was gorgeous. Lee Mills is helping us explore great venues for enjoying classical music in Europe right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Lee is an associate conductor with the Seattle Symphony and his previous residencies include five years with the Brazilian Symphony Orchestra in Rio de Janeiro. Lee lists the concerts he'll be conducting soon with the Seattle Symphony and also with the Elgin Symphony and the Spartanburg Philharmonic. It's on his website, leemillsconductor.com. You can hear more about Lee's conducting career from his previous visit with us on Travel with Rick Steves Program number 686. That was in August of 2022. You'll find it in our show archives at ricksteves.com radio. You know, a lot of times you'll find free concerts, and I've noticed that you go to the free concert in the great church, and it's Saturday afternoon, And it's a group from Minneapolis, or it's a group from Salt Lake City, or it's a group from Boston. And you realize there's a lot of um, touring choirs and musical groups that are just looking for a venue and an audience. Yeah.
3: Well, especially collegiate choirs. Uh, You know, that was a big part of where I went to college. I went on tour twice with my choir from college. You know, it's a good... Um, way for us to get out and visit Europe and learn about other cultures. We usually have exchanges with other choirs from from that we'll sing a concert together with a choir from Mm. Tallinn or something like that. One of my
0: favorite things is an even song service. Yes. And a lot of times you'll have an American visiting choir, Mm -hmm. like I suppose from your school, um, that's just happy to be able to, um, especially in summertime when the local musicians are on break. Yeah. So be be mindful of that as you travel around. And you mentioned... um, practices. In Wales, the the whole thing is really, the choirs of Wales are just famous. And they practice every Wednesday. It's a social kind of get-together. And they make a big deal about it. Tourists are welcome to go to the practice and afterwards, all the choral members go to the pub and then they (laughs) just make some fun music and you're part of the party.
3: Yeah, that's really cool.
0: So you got to be creative. You got to reach out when you're
3: traveling. Look at all the little nooks and crannies.
0: Yeah, and if you hear, I'll never forget, I, I listened to a a cappella group in Croatia. I was just in a little no-name town and I heard some beautiful a cappella music and I just opened the door and I peeked in and they said, please come in, sit down. And I just had a great experience and they are probably performing for a price the next day, you know. Yeah, But I was welcome to enjoy it. You got your
3: own private performance.
0: I did. Lee Mills, thank you so much for joining us and uh, let's just finish it off with um, if you can think in your travels because now you're a professional conductor and you get classical music all the time but even when you were just a backpacker what's one musical moment in Europe that you just treasure?
3: Oh gosh, one. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Actually, can it be as a performer? Sure, but yeah, it was. It's funny because it was while we were on one of these tours with my choir group, and within our choir, we had a small quartet that we sang some things. And we just were hanging out, waiting for our tour bus or something outside of a church in Prague, and uh, we just started singing the just our quartet, and this huge crowd <laughs> gathered around us to watch. Like probably thirty people showed up. We just sang a couple of things. It was just how enthusiastic everybody was to see us performing there. And they probably remember that to this day.
0: They they might, yeah.
3: I do. Just like you guys.
0: Yeah. <laughs> that's a that's a a nice thought about how music can bring people together. Yeah, exactly. And it's a nice thought about how music can kinda just carbonate your whole travel experience if you if you play it right when Definitely. you're far away from home. Maestro Lee Mills, thank you so much. Best wishes with your career. Thank you. And I hope you and I can share the stage one more time because I have so much fun. Yeah, me too. When I watch you conducting, bringing that whole symphony orchestra together as we try to take people around the world with music. Thanks, Lee.
3: Thank you.
1: Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton, Kaz hall and Donna Bardsley at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. When you're on a road trip, you can listen to Travel with Rick Steves on one of more than 500 other radio stations. You'll find a list of when and where we're broadcast at ricksteves.com radio. We'll see you next week with more
0: Travel with Rick Steves. My Facebook friends are a fun community of curious travelers, and you're invited to join in. To stow away with me in my work, play, politics, philanthropy, and travels, follow me at Rick Steves on Facebook.